From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On May Day, International Workers' Day, thousands of undocumented immigrants marched on federal offices in Washington, demanding permanent protection, dignity, and respect. Essential workers, undocumented essential workers, have been holding this country together. So we are out here to demand a pathway to citizenship for essential workers, for all undocumented immigrants. And a D.C. rally celebrates Mother's Day in a different way honoring so many whose sons and daughters were killed by police, but whose names are not known. Till the murders just stop, and the blood of our loved ones will be on the hands of those that you who have the power to make the changes. So I'm asking those that are listening, when history is written, what side of justice will you be on? All that and much more, including what's happening in Colombia and Haiti, coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, the Biden administration's decision to support a temporary patent waiver for coronavirus vaccines, a move long advocated for by public health experts, is putting pressure on Canada, the UK, and the European Union to do the same. Without a consensus of these wealthier nations, which hold patents on vaccines, the patents cannot be waived. Though these vaccines were created using global research and public dollars, poor countries could still be denied access to vaccines and treatments and could develop as hotspots for outbreaks and new variants of the disease. Just before Biden's announcement on May 5th, organizations including Social Security Works held a rally on the National Mall urging Biden to take action. Fareed Gamina Tumpe from the community organization Spaces in Action reminded the crowd of the urgency for a change in policy. It is very unfortunate that today in India, over 3,000 people are dying every single day. And in Brazil, over 4,000 people are dying a day. But if Joe Biden frees the vaccine, if Joe Biden frees the vaccine, say it with me. If Joe Biden frees the vaccine, we would live in a much more caring world, a much more sharing world. And meeting the needs of essential workers during the pandemic is the focus of a new campaign by D.C. Jobs with Justice. Chantel James attended an information session this week. On Wednesday, the Metro Washington Council AFL-CIO and D.C. Jobs with Justice held a virtual rally supporting calling on the mayor to enact the D.C. Essential Workers' Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights would ensure increased pay during the pandemic and give rights such as emergency sick leave, bereavement leave, emergency hazard pay, and higher standards for workplace safety. Essential workers from across the city championed the cause out of their personal experiences during the pandemic Essential worker Gisa Net Gonzalez gave her perspective. 
I do think that the DEC essential workers feels right. We'll give the hazard pay that we deserve. We have been working this whole year under very different and difficult circumstances that not everyone had to go out during pandemic. There were letters being sent out just to let us know, hey, you're essential. You can go out and you can go work. But we haven't received anything saying, hey, you're a health worker. Here you go. Thank you for your work. Last uh, July, my father has contracted COVID-19. During the time that he got COVID-19, my whole family was exposed. My whole family had to get tested. Why? The only way for me to go around, go to Costco, which kids were not allowed, uh, go into work, my parents would take care of my, my daughter while I was at work. So we were exposed as well. Thank goodness we didn't get it. But it was a very hard situation financially and personal and at work because I had to quarantine myself and quarantine my family in order for us to keep everybody safe but keep ourselves safe. Now, I do believe that if we were to have a hazard pay or a sick leave, this person wouldn't be in a work passing the virus on. The organizers encouraged the signing of their petition and reaching out to Mayor Muriel Bowser on social media to advocate for the policy. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. Thousands of undocumented immigrants, many of whom are working as essential workers during the pandemic, marched in D.C. on May 1st, International Workers' Day, which also coincided with Joe Biden's first 100 days in office. That is time enough, participants said, to be on track to keep his campaign promises to the 11 million undocumented workers in the U.S. Yelly Montana spoke on a virtual broadcast by the organization CASA from the rally. Unfortunately, we've seen detentions and deportation continue, even though Biden has committed to supporting the immigrant community. And so we're here with a large group of folks committed in support and here with allies, all supporting the immigrant community because they were the ones who kept us through the pandemic. And now I'm joined by Lee Adorno, a volunteer with Movimiento Concecha, one of the mass organizations who rallied in D.C. on May Day, International Workers' Day. Welcome to the show, Lee. Hey, how are you? Nice, nice to be here. Thank you for that introduction. Well, thank you for joining me. And first, I'm sure a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with Concecha. So tell us a little bit about it and why you came down to D.C. on May Day. Yeah, for sure. So Movimiento Cosecha is a nonviolent like movement that is being led by undocumented people in the United States. And we are fighting for very basic things in our belief, which is uh, dignity for our community, respect for our community, and respect for the sacrifices that our community makes uh, every day. And permanent protection, right? The ability to be able to live in peace without having the need to always be constantly looking behind our backs, like hiding it from ICE and the administrations that continue to pursue us. And this May 1st, like we went down to D.C. mostly to come into the solidarity with the international workers of the world on International Workers' Day. And then also because it marked the, the first 100 days that Biden's administration is, you know, in office. And 
We went there because we are seeing patterns. We are seeing patterns between his administration and the Obama administration. Patterns that point that there's no like hard stuff being done when it, when it comes to addressing the 11 million undocumented people that live in the United States and our needs, mm-hmm. right? Needs being that he hasn't stopped the, the deportations that he said he would stop. Right now, there's about 100,000 deportations uh, already in the first like 100 days. That's like well, like a thousand for per day, right? Right. And we're seeing also a trend that when the Democrats like don't have like that many people to deport, they they intentionally go out and, and look for black people to deport, and that's what we're seeing under the Biden administration. That's what we saw in the Obama administration, and so we want to make sure to uplift. They know that there is a whole eleven million undocumented people who he made a promise to, and that we are here demanding that that he commits to to the promise. Wow. So I think a theme for that day was papers, yes, crumbs, no, right? And it was a very powerful theme. Uh, I listened to a lot of the speakers. I'm not prolific in Spanish, but I heard one speaker lifting up the name of Berta Caceres and Malcolm X. And really, I could tell that the movement was in the tradition of just, you know, standing up and uh, being a force of resistance. What we know we do is that we are unapologetic with how we express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've known that from day one. Cosecha actually comes from the frustration of undocumented people having to, like, appear as, like, oh, we're the good immigrant. Then there's a bad immigrant. Uh, when in reality, you know, we are all immigrants and we're, we're all, like, good people, right? And we all have reasons why we came here and we all have dreams. Right. And so... We have always seen ourselves to carry our own worth and to carry our demands. Right. right? And what we're not in support of, right, it's that we have seen that the Democratic Party and the Republican Party do not actually care about the undocumented community. And even though they say they do, they only use us as political pawns. And so what we're seeing with the slogan, papers yes, crumbs no, is that we're sick and tired of the crumbs. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that not a lot has changed in our communities in the past, like 20 years, for example. Right. And uh, both parties are, are complicit in the deportation and separation of families uh, in the undocumented community. And what we're asking for, one, is not a lot. And two, like it can actually be done. And everything that Democrats have always been asking for, like they have right now, and they're choosing not to do anything. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. this is a non-negotiable anymore. There are some things where, like, you have to draw the line. And when people's lives are being lost and when, for example, like, the whole COVID relief, like, when we were explicitly left out, mm. like, that is a disrespect that there is no coming back from unless there's real action right. on your behalf. And I know that a theme of the May Day protest here was also around the fact that so many people from the Latinx community and I guess also from, you know, just the undocumented community in general are are part of the uh, groups of essential workers and how many people were not given any special safety as essential workers. And also, as you said, people were not even included in the COVID relief to so that they could stay safe. Right, right, right. So, like, they were literally expecting the most out of the people who have been giving the most. And we're tired of that. We're tired of living like that. And so we're going to take a stand and we're going to demand what we believe we deserve. 
because there is a theft, right? When like the government collects taxes from people and doesn't give them back, like that is a theft. That mm, is mm, a, a theft mm. from people's labor. And government is happy profiting from not only making them work extra hard, right? Like in at places where it's high risk, where it's low pay, but at the same time also profits from criminalizing them and putting them in detention centers and deporting them and creating a criminal record for them. I've been speaking with Lee Adorno. He's a volunteer with Movimiento Concecha. Thank you so much for joining me, Lee. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, when it comes to the crisis in affordable housing for immigrant families and those native-born, D.C. is not unique. Lydia Curtis has more. On Saturday, April 24th, advocates of truly affordable housing under the auspices of the Washington Interfaith Network did an action entitled Bridging the River on a 67-acre parcel of land in Washington, D.C. called Reservation 13. This land, located in Ward 6, is adjacent to the D.C. Armory and is the site of the former D.C. General Hospital. More than 60 activists and concerned citizens gathered in person and another 200 virtually to demand that potential developers produce 3,000 units of housing, not hotels, on that land. 1,000 units for low-income and no-income residents, 1,000 units of workforce housing for blue-collar workers, and 1,000 at market rate. We hear from Ann Ford, a longtime D.C. resident and activist. Good morning and welcome on-site visitors and virtual audience. My name is Ann Ford. I'm a native Washingtonian, Ward 7 resident, and a proud member of Holy Comfort of St. Sippens Roman Catholic Church here in Ward 6. I care about this site because I grew up in this neighborhood a couple of blocks away. I worked here as a nurse for 17 years. The hospital closed due to shortage of funding. This site was number one trauma center. This site became home to over a thousand families who had, through no fault of their own, fell on hard times, and the result was homelessness. I, along with members of WIN, organized homeless residents who were being ignored here until we were able to lead the fight to close down the D.C. General Family Shelter. The WIN team and I sat down at the table with Mayor Bowser to build smaller family emergency housing in all eight wards. I myself have faced homelessness and had family support. As a single parent, raised my daughters in a one-bedroom most of my life. I am now a homeowner in Ward 7, three-bedroom condo with the help of HPAP. My oldest daughter is a homeowner in Ward 8. This land matters to me because I have two daughters and other relatives, if the price is right, can obtain affordable housing and home ownership possibilities here in Ward 6. This land matters to me because many native Washingtonians were born here. Many incarcerated here during the war on drugs. Many suffered through terrible conditions. This land holds the story of my people, of our people. This land matters because it's potential to create stability and wealth for people like me. 
And when, as you have heard me say it before, we'll say it again, we did not fight to close down DC Journal for it to be turned into luxury condos. So developers, hi from me. We wanna see one third, one third, one third, and a bold vision from each of you. Reverend Matthew Watson, pastor of Christ City Church, laid a public challenge to developer Chris Marshall of NRP and developer Evan Charles of Frontier Community Partners. So here's the question for you. Will you commit to work with Wynn on a third, a third, a third, and a bold vision for affordability on this side? Yes or no? Absolutely. We will work with Win, yes. <laughs> Great, we'll take it. Uh, also on Zoom, we have one of the developers, R13 Community Partners. Uh, Evan Charles is here. Mr. Charles uh, wants to uh, look to you and ask you the same question. And when I finish, if you can unmute on Zoom, uh, will you commit to work with Win on a third, a third, a third, and a bold vision for affordability on this site? Uh, yes or no? Yes. According to 2021 statistics from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, for every District of Columbia household that can get an affordable housing rental unit, there is another family that needs one. The Washington Interfaith Network, or WIN, has been working with the community to change that. WIN provided kites to fly over the land in their signature royal blue to signify the people's claim. Reverend Lamar of Metropolitan AME Church closed it out with a call to action. Time is up for DC developers coming in only wanting money but not caring about the lives of the citizens who already live here. Their time is up for political leaders looking the other way instead of standing up for the citizens they were elected to serve. The time is up for church leaders to stop sitting in their tents and doing nothing instead of crying out, we refuse to live like this anymore. The five developers will make their best and final offers on Thursday, May 20th at 6 p.m. If you would like to be a part of that hearing, please leave your contact information at 202-503-9695, area code 202-503-9695. For On the Ground, this is Lydia Curtis. And finally, in culture and media, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Thursday that state's new voter suppression bill in a ceremony that only Fox News was allowed to attend. And shocking videos and stories circulated this week showing Palestinians being forced from their homes by Israeli settlers, some with New York accents. In one video, children can be heard screaming as their belongings are thrown outside the doorway. In another story, an Israeli man tells a family whose home he is stealing that, quote, if I don't steal it, someone else will. Even Human Rights Watch labels Israel's crimes as apartheid in a new report. And finally, the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press released a report this week for World Press Freedom Day, documenting that journalists covering Black Lives Matter protests faced a record number of attacks, mainly by police. The report says, quote, 
Police officers shot journalists with various forms of projectiles, like rubber-coated bullets, which can be lethal at close range. They caused serious injuries to reporters, permanently blinding one of them. Officers often ignored journalists' press credentials and flouted news media exemptions to local curfew ordinances. Police also detained reporters using mass arrests, and in at least one case, even handcuffed a TV news journalist as he reported live on air. The report says a Buffalo officer reportedly told a freelance journalist, "F your First Amendment," as police pointed guns at his head. The report noted that while the Biden administration does not attack the press as did his predecessor, his administration is still pursuing prosecution of WikiLeaks founder and editor Julian Assange, which includes charges based solely on the act of publicly disclosing government secrets. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Soy un Congo de la madre, África. Venimos el Congo de la madre, África. No traigo un Congo de su madre, África. Somos del Congo de la madre, África. Yo soy un Congo de la madre, África. Venimos el Congo de la madre, África. No traigo un Congo de su madre, África. Somos del Congo de la madre. This is on the ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Everam. And as Colombia's nationwide strike against the neoliberal policies of the Ivan Duque administration and the government's deadly repression of protesters continue this week, a growing chorus of progressive voices condemn the brutal crackdown and call for an end to the state violence. Well, here to discuss this and other international issues is Ajamu Baraka, international human rights activist and a frequent writer and commentator on human rights issues. He is also national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace and former Green Party nominee for Vice President of the United States. Welcome back to the show, Ajamu. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with Colombia, uh, where you are. And the way I understand it, these demonstrations began as a protest against taxes that Duque wanted to put on basic necessities for life for people there. But they've kind of blossomed into a general uprising against his policies and the poverty the disposition of the pandemic and just basically people's needs not being met. What do you want to tell us about what's happening there? Well, you know, it's interesting because the tax reform that Duque and his government tried to introduce were reforms that were encouraged by the Biden administration. And the reason why they encouraged a transformation of the tax code is because of the contraction of the Colombian economy and the fear that the government may have some difficulties in paying back its enormous foreign debt. So they encouraged the Duque administration to revamp its tax code, put the onus of the debt burden on the working class that would tax for the first time gasoline, food, utilities, and the people said, oh no, 
No, no, no. And they went to the streets. And the government responded in a heavy-handed way because some of the most intense reactions to the tax reform were taking place in communities where you had a large number of black people. And so the uh, special police forces uh, took a heavy-handed approach and, in fact, murdered a number of people. And that sparked an even more massive outpouring of, of support from people in college. In the meantime, though, across the country, the country was shut down. They stopped uh, all uh, goods coming from the major port of Buenaventura. People were not going to work. So it was a real national strike. And it continues. Uh, It continues and it will continue because of the economic plight that people are facing in this country and the reason that they turned away from just having to focus on the taxes to the general situation is because they don't trust that the government has any kind of solutions to the grinding poverty uh, and the economic contradictions that exist in this country. When you were talking about the situation there and the the number I had was that 24 people had been murdered basically by these, not just police, but the military has been called in on the civilian population and I'm thinking about the way the Biden administration has continued to recognize the the so-called government of Juan Guaido that does not exist in Venezuela and continue the repression, sanctions against Venezuela when this is a country where they're not repressing their people. They're not murdering their civilians in the streets. They've taken really strong steps to deal with the pandemic. And Colombia is supposedly an ally and new partner in NATO. So you're telling me something I didn't know about how these new policies are connected to the Biden administration. Similarly, I want to move to Haiti. I know Black Alliance for Peace has staged two or three demonstrations here in D.C. that we've we've covered about the Biden administration's policies toward Haiti. And I suppose that this is out of the same cloth. It really is. I mean, these are reflective of the kinds of reactionary policies that the Biden administration uh, continues in this region from the previous administrations, both the Trump administration and the administration that he was in with Barack Obama. But the situation in Haiti is even more egregious in the sense that, you know, everybody in the U.S. were concerned about the possibility of Trump not leaving office at the end of his term. And we saw all these reports about the possibility of a coup and all this kind of good stuff. Well, the first thing that the Biden administration does once they take power is that they give the green light to their puppet government in Haiti, Jovenel Moise, to ignore the February 7th deadline of his administration in spite of the protests and the demands coming from the Haitian people uh, and allow him to, in fact, stay in office past February 7th. So this contradiction one would think would be quite obvious to people in the U.S., but apparently it it really wasn't. But this is what they do. It's what they did in Haiti. In your question, you talked about what's unfolding in Venezuela uh, with them recognizing this fake government of Guaido. These are all the contradictions we see with U.S. policies because their main objective is maintaining power and control and notions of democracy or commitment to to democracy or human rights, that's really for domestic consumption. Right, and it's really perfect that you mentioned that because this phrase has been rolling around in my head lately. Anthony Blinken has been going around talking about the rules-based order 
and basically saber rattling at China, talking about how China is violating the rules based order. They've made up these out of whole cloth charges against so-called genocide in the against Uyghurs. When you have actually the universal genocider, you know, the United States are making those types of claims and looking the other way at what's happening in places like Haiti and Colombia. So I sent you an article. I wanted to get your thoughts about the the article that appeared in Al Jazeera this week, written by three social scientists. And they explained that in their own research, they arrived at the figure of $152 trillion plundered in the post-colonial era from the global South. And the plunderers are the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, Japan, and South Korea, and the rich economies of Europe. And that they appropriate about $2.2 trillion worth of resources and labor per year from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. When you talk about Haiti and you talk about Colombia, it, it makes me this think of, of so many of the discussions that we've been having on the left recently, just kind of really talking about how imperialism is being manifested, not only in South America and the Caribbean, but in Africa and Asia, what has happened historically. I don't know if you saw the documentary Exterminate All the Brutes, you know, Raul Peck's piece talking about that. And there's some pieces out of missing out of that, I think almost intentionally, like he doesn't talk about Venezuela on the map of places influenced by the Haitian Revolution, for example. You know, like you see all these places earmarked on South America that were influenced by the Haitian Revolution, which he's very proud of. But if you look, there's a big empty spot on that map in South America where Venezuela would be, you know. Uh, so maybe th- those are some of the compromises he had to make to get his his piece on HBO. But what I'm saying is that when Anthony Blinken talks about the rules based order, it's continued repression of people in Colombia, continued repression of of people in Haiti, the U.S. continuing to assist the Saudis to bomb Yemen. That's part of the rules based order, obviously. It really is. And that's what the article was touching on, the fact that what we have with the U.S. and with Western Europe is their attempts to try to maintain a certain kind of relationship, one of exploitation and oppression between Europe and the rest of the world, in particular the so-called Global South. And the reason why they have to maintain that relationship is because the relationship is a parasitic relationship, that value has been extracted from these areas for centuries. In fact, that became the material basis for the rise of what we refer to today as Western Europe. So that material reality, that dominance, is what they're trying to maintain in the midst of this grinding crisis that they're facing with the global uh, capitalist order. So this notion that Blinken and the Biden administration is committed to something called a rules-based order is completely absurd because they have been engaged in uh, piracy, in criminology from the very since 1492, and that's only uh, intensified over the last few decades. So the U.S. has been operating as a rogue state for the last few years, and they will continue if they were concerned about the rules-based order uh, coming out of the Second World War and the, and the United Nations Charter. Then they will withdraw their troops from Syria, from Iraq. They would not have violated the spirit of the peace accords in Afghanistan, but they haven't done that because they are relying on one factor and one factor only to try to maintain their dominance, and that is state violence. 
Ajama Baraka, international human rights activist and a frequent writer and commentator on human rights issues. He's also national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. Thank you, Ajamu. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 man Spike says, uh-huh. days. Wake up! They've been hating since Benjamin Banneker, the first DC artist to let you know you can't handle us. Uh-huh. Taught you how to see without cameras. Created DC, yet y'all worship is scandalous. Taught you to hate the smart black man. Accused him of acting white, not a dark black man. Pitching that color versus the brain. So that any black man who thinks for himself's insane. I laugh when artists complain about DC. I'm out here fighting for screaming in Fiji. Y'all trying to impress some dudes in PG. Or whether it's your mommy or your granddaddy in Southeast. Y'all brothers better pace up, pace up. Ain't but so much space, they gon' let y'all take up. They legalize trees, whitey getting all caked up. Eyes wide open, y'all brothers need to wake up. We have said. I can't breathe a million times in walled houses against the dirty ground. Millions have cried mama, but watching a murder unfold into one global moment, the whole world was infected and weeping, the angry and raging infested with invisible particles. But though our eyes may weep, this is a warrior speak. The wounds of black women are screaming for justice. Through ashes of fire and determination, the voices of mama will change this nation. We have not evolved from something inferior. We have not come from mud, from clay, from the bottom of the earth. Our crowns were broken, our bodies robbed of the great life they were destined to live. We were sacrifices offered up, all for profit for the ill-gotten gains, for the unfair harvests of low-life thieves. They spewed their violence across continents. Our people were forced into positions of subservience that raised this country up. And now in the days of hanging low, the true past is being exposed. We heard the moans. We were watching it. We heard the despairing words. We were seeing it. A man tasting bitter death cries out to his mama. These mothers are raising up to claim their rightful ancestry as queens. There is no belly fire. There is no slow steady of determination greater than a mother who bore flesh in her flesh, who nurtured life in her body, seeing her child pass through death's door, swallowed up an eternal night before her. The bones of black people are weightier, heavier in the grieving quiet of still light. We remain ready to fight. A beating has started. It cannot be stopped. Hear the drum beats, the drum walk, the drum talks. It started in Africa and was brought here. And though our eyes may shed many tears, as long as our hearts are beating, we are demanding freedom, equality for all. Hear the rallying cry. We will not stop. We do not tire. This is an unceasing righteous fire. Justice now. True equality for all. Hear the rallying call. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Wanted to welcome everyone. 
to the Hear the Cry Rally. Come on, give yourselves a hand for being here. We're here today because we are a community that, that believes that we have to stand up for justice and for righteousness. We're here today because we're tired of our young black brothers and sisters being killed by the police. We're here today because many times when we have rallies and marches, we hear from the preachers. We hear from the organizations who are speaking on behalf of the people. But today we wanted the mothers to speak for themselves. Let's give the mothers a hand. Come on, we can do better than that. I'm going to call names and those that are here, you can stand when your name is called. And so we realize that Mother's Day is just around the corner this Sunday and many of us will be celebrating. Many of us will be going and buying gifts and, and, and many of us will have happy moments for Mother's Day. But here in this club, Mother's Day doesn't look the same way. So we wanted to have something so that they know that we haven't forgotten about them. But we also wanted to demand that our government catches up to the rest of the world. We're tired of policing being different for African-Americans than they are for white Americans. And so we're coming today asking for them to hear the cry like for to give the list of mothers that we have here long i will i will read the names of the mother as long along with the child that was killed by a police officer and the city that that murder took place randa dormias will you stand and she's representing corinne Gaines. the death took place on August 1st, 2016, Randallstown, Baltimore, Maryland. Catherine Young is here representing Daquan Young. The child died on May 9th, 2018, Washington, D.C., off-duty police officer. Melody Cooper representing Kwamina Orkren. A crime. January 8th, 2021, Gaithersburg, Maryland. Beverly Smith. Alonzo Smith is the child which took place November 1st, 2015, Washington, D.C. Special Police Officer. Marion Gray Hopkins, child is Gary Hopkins, November 27th, 1999, Lanham, Maryland. Greta Willis, parent of Kevin Cooper, August 12th, 2006, Baltimore, Maryland. Pam Brooks, Child is Amir Brooks, 
August 6, 2014, Washington, D.C., off-duty officer. Kediatu Diallo, Charles Amadou Diallo, took place February 4th, 1999, in New York City Police Department. Darlene Kane, Dale Graham is the child, October 28th, 2018, Baltimore, Maryland. Tracy Shan, Leonard Shan, was her brother. That's September 26th, 2019, which took place in Germantown, Maryland. Then we have with us two special guests who decided to come down to support this cause. Miss Valerie Bell, the mother of Sean Bell in New York. And then Miss Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, who we know said, I can't breathe. Brenda Joyner with Trey Joyner, U.S. Park Police, 2009. Roxanne Johnson, Jamal Bird, killed in police custody, October 1st, 2019. Denise Brown, will you stand? Jeffrey Price, 2018, Washington, D.C. Ms. Karen Brown, we're going to ask you to pray for these families. No justice, no peace, no racist police. That's why we're here today. We need systematic change. Today I want you to hear some stories from Miss Marion Gray Hopkins, Miss Greta Brooks, Miss Pam Brooks. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to thank Reverend Gilbert for this opportunity to be here. My name is Marion Gray Hopkins. I am the president and the co-founder of the Coalition of Concerned Mothers, an organization led by black mothers who have unfortunately lost their children to police violence. More importantly, I am the mother of Gary Hopkins Jr., who was unjustly murdered by two Prince George's County police officers on November 27, 1999, at the young age of 19. Gary was attending a dance at a local fire station. Gary was a peacemaker that night, breaking up an altercation between two party goers, one friend and someone else that was at the dance. When the dance concluded, Gary made sure his friends were in their respective vehicles. Gary, being a jokester that he was, was sitting on the outside ledge of the car, making certain that his friends was where he had put them. As Gary is looking back, a police officer comes, blocks them from exiting the fire station. Again, Gary's sitting on the window ledge. He gets out of his patrol car, his gun already drawn. He puts that cold gun to Gary's temple. Gary pushes that gun away. He puts it back to Gary's temple. He pulls Gary off of the ledge of that vehicle by the collar of his car, spinning him around when a second officer 
who was moonlighting at the dance that night, made one fatal gunshot wound center mass to Gary's chest, killing him. My journey to justice, my journey for transparency, my journey for accountability started on that day. Gary's death catapulted me into becoming a civil liberties and social justice activist because we want change. My cry for justice went unheard. As for those speaking here today, no one heard their cries either. Here I stand more than 21 years later, still crying out for justice, demanding that you hear the cry of the thousands of mothers, sisters, aunties, grandmothers across this nation who are again crying out for justice. We are sick and tired of adding more to this sorority. We didn't pledge to be a part of this, nor did we want to be a part of this club. We have to deal with this white supremacist racial injustice system every day that treats black and brown people much different than our white counterparts. It should not have taken the death of George Floyd for us to begin to take actions, watching that video for over nine minutes while this officer had his, his knee on the neck for America to say enough is enough and that we must do the right thing. From the time my son was murdered until the death of George Floyd, there was over 21,000 other George Floyd's police involved deaths. We are tired of adding more, more, more mothers to this sorority that we again never wanted to pledge or be a part of. So we're here today to demand the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. We demand transparency and accountability. We must ensure that all branches of law enforcement are governed the same by implementing laws that will eliminate qualified immunity, eliminate the no-narc warrants, require that the use of a de-escalation tactics before deadly force, the implementation of true civilian review boards, ones that have investigatory and disciplinary actions against police officers that don't do the right thing. We want independent prosecutors. Let's reduce and defund police departments' budgets and refund money to the communities all in an effort to stop this discrimination, to build community trust, and to save lives, preventing the disproportionate rate of killings against people of color. And until the murders just stop and the blood of our loved ones will be on the hands of those that you who have the power to make the changes. So I'm asking those that are listening, when history is written, what side of justice will you be on? And I pray that it will be on the right side of justice. Please hear our cries. Thank you. That was Marion Gray Hopkins speaking at the Hear the Cry rally held Thursday, May 6, 2021 on Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. More from the rally after a brief break. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Miss Willis. Good afternoon, everyone. It's hard for us as mothers to be here, but necessary. 
It is necessary because we are the ones who have lost our loved one. We are the ones who cry at night. We are the ones that our heart feel like it's torn out and torn into pieces. But people don't understand the love of a mother and the cry of a mother. After a mother has birthed a child and brought a child into this old cruel world, no matter what goes and what comes, us as mothers, that we will ensure that our child's name will not go down in vain. Their memory will not be lost. Their lives will always be remembered. I am a mother that have lost my 14 year old son who was murdered by a Baltimore City police officer in my home in front of me. Unfortunately, on August the 12th of 2006, at 9.30 a.m. in the morning, that we had to encounter an officer that had an angry spirit. An angry spirit. Not a spirit that come to protect and serve, but a spirit that came to kill, steal, and destroy. Because in other communities, the same instances where their sons and daughters are having mental breakdowns. They're able to walk from their homes and go and get some help. But for unfortunately for me, because of my son being an African-American young man, his life was taken unjustly in my home. And Baltimore City says that a plastic dustpan is a weapon. A weapon against a trained man, a trained officer who is sworn to protect and serve. But I'm here, well, along with the other mothers, to serve notice on all of the lawmakers to let you know that mothers just as whisper in the Bible, that she protected her dead, that we're gonna continue to protect the memory of our children. The memory of our loved ones, we will continue to protect their memory. That it will not, there will not, their memory will not be tarnished and their names will not go down in vain. Amen, amen. Let's give her another hand. Miss Pam Brooks. Good afternoon, everyone. This place where I'm standing, I never in a million years thought I would be standing here. A month before my son passed, his life was taken by the police officer. I remember seeing Miss Gwen Carr on the news. His death was three weeks after Eric Garner, three days before Michael Brown, three months before Tamir Rice. And what you see, right, it's a pattern on our black young men. And I just want to say this, do not wait for a high profile case to get involved. Please, you have cases right here in the DMV that you can get involved with. I never thought I'd be standing here. I never thought I'd be talking on panels like this, but I'm here because I'm the voice of my son, Amir Damani Brooks, whose life was cut short on August the 6th, 2014 at the hands of an off-duty Prince George's County police officer. My son's case is a little different because he was on a dirt bike being a teenager at the age of 17. This police officer suspected my son of being involved in a robbery eight weeks prior to this chase. He gave his description of the bike, 
the dispatch told him, that's not the bike we're looking for to fall back. Do you think he fell back? He didn't. No. He continued to chase my son a mile out of Maryland, another mile into D.C. My son hit a tree and he crashed. Jesus. This Jesus. police officer chased my son up to the scene, got out of his car, looked at my son and his cousin on the ground. My son's cousin was on the back of the bike. Thankfully, he survived. He got back in the car and pulled off. He left my son on the street like an animal. So I want to just say this to you all. Hold police accountable just like you would have held my son accountable if that police officer had died. They have to be held accountable for everything they do out here to our children, our loved ones. As long as they keep getting away with it, they continue to do what they're doing. We have to support families. Yeah. If you see anybody out here that's having something, support that family. Because guess what? It's knocking on your door just like it knocked on ours. Unfortunately, we didn't we didn't ask to come here. We didn't ask to be here. But we're here now and we support. It. Look at Ms. Carr and Ms. Bell. They came from New York. We support them just as well. This place should be packed right now. This place should be packed. And I'm, I'm sad about it. Because if it was a, a high-profile case, it Thank would be. But guess what? Amir Damani Brooks' case is high-profile because of his mother, Pamela Brooks. Guess what? Guess what? You have to make your case high-profile. You can't wait for people to do it for you. Keep saying your children's name. Keep saying your loved one's name. Because guess what? Somebody's going to hear it, and eventually change will come. And Pamela Brooks, mother of Amir Damani Brooks, will have the last word on today's show. We will post on our website more from the Hear the Cry rally held Thursday, May 6, 2021 on Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. The poet reciting at the start of the Mother's Rally is Brenda Bunting. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show. If you ever miss any of our shows, you can always listen to them on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org and you can reach out to us there and support us there as well you can also let us know you like the show at on the ground show on facebook twitter or on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show our new podcast on the ground with esther Ivarum is on all your podcast platforms our new podcast social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground the music we played this hour included Panamonk by Danilo Perez, Congo and La Madre by Bitwaya, All Go Blind by Crossroads, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Mr. Ivera. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com 
forward slash on the ground show. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.